S.I. McMullen was a physician and a doctor or and a, and a Christian. Uh, and he wrote a book entitled, None of These Diseases. In this book, he tells the story of a woman who wanted to go to college. And so she got the application papers, and her heart sunk when she came to the point on the application where it said this question, are you a leader? And she realized she wasn't. And being a woman of integrity and honesty, she put down on the thing, no. She finished filling out the application and sent it back, fully expecting to be rejected by the, by the college. To her great surprise, though, a letter came back to her several weeks later, and it read as this way. It says, Dear applicant, a study of application forms reveals that this year our incoming class will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. (laughs) It is conventional wisdom that we need leaders. We talk about leadership all the time. What we don't talk about is what it means to be a follower. Every good leader I have ever known knew how to follow before they led. And leaders need followers. Without followers, leaders are just dreamers. And if you think you are leading and nobody is following you, you're just taking a walk. (laughs) Leaders need followers. They need their ideas. They need their energy. They need their encouragement. Will Rogers once said that we can't all be heroes. Somebody needs to sit on the curb and clap. They also need their talent. The great legendary coach John Wooden at UCLA once said that a player who makes his team great is more valuable than a great player. Think about it. Leaders need followers. And yet, if you look at in the, in the New Testament, you will find that there's far more verses on following there is in leading. But it's what leaders need from their followers is what I want to kind of focus in on this morning. What is it that leaders need from their followers, if the kingdom of God, especially in in the church, I'm focusing on spiritual leaders in particular this morning, what is it that leaders need most from their followers if the kingdom of God is to to accomplish God's purposes in, in the world and we are to go forward? I mean, are we standing on the promises or are we just sitting on the premises? Who are we following? What do they need from us? So this morning, I want to I look at a book that you probably have never spent much time in, and yet it's a, written by the Apostle John. It is the book of 3 John. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 3 John. 3 John is the third book from the end of the Bible. You go Revelation, you take a left, you go through Jude, and you're at 3 John. Uh, it is uh, the second shortest book in the New Testament. It only has 
15 verses. So I'm going to preach the whole book of 1 John this morning. Not only that, it is the, because it is so short, uh, 2 John and 3 John are so short, uh, I, it's hard to call them an, an epistle. It's hard to call them a letter. I kind of like to call them a post-it note that, that God left for us. But, oh, the wisdom that is in there. You see, what you discover in 3 John, actually in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is that the, the whole concept of, oh, we've got to get back to the first century church. Well, the truth is the first century church wasn't all that different in some ways than the 21st century church. And John writes this deeply personal note to his friend Gaius as a reminder of that, that there are power struggles, there, were, there was conflict, there was gossip, there was disunity, and they've been with us since the very beginning of the church age. This morning, we're going to meet three men. One by the name of Gaius, one by the name of Diatrophes, and one by the name of Demetrius. You've probably never heard of them before. But what they tell us about what it means to be a follower is timeless. And so I want to invite you to open your Bibles, like I said, if you have that, and let's jump in together. I'm beginning in the first verse of 3 John this morning. It begins, the the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. As a pastor, and I was a pastor over a period of over 30 years in several different churches, that became one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. John is writing to a friend by the name of Gaius. And he refers to him as beloved, the beloved one. Four times in these four verses, he refers to him as the beloved. I think they had a close relationship. Perhaps Gaius was a man that he had, ra- had led to Jesus. We don't know. Uh, he was probably a prominent member of the congregation that he was writing, uh, or that uh, he was in. And this is a letter that was written to him. It's like we get to look into his private email and read it. And, and, and what he was wanting to do to encourage this man, Gaius. You see, this letter was written around 90 AD, somewhere in there. Okay? So let's do some math. John was a disciple of Jesus. He was probably fairly young, so I'm guessing he was in his, maybe his 20s, early 20s. It is now around 90 AD, 60 years later. So this is, John is writing perhaps, and it's near the end of his life, so it's, it's reasonable to assume that John was probably somewhere in his 80s, maybe even his 90s, we don't know for sure. But he wasn't 
traveling quite as much. And so what he was doing is he would send out these young men, these young missionaries, these brothers that he refers to in the text. And they were extending his word, his, the message of the gospel. They were itinerant teachers, preachers, prophets, evangelists that were going out and they were sharing the gospel. And he's writing to Gaius to encourage him for what he's facing in in the church and to encourage him to keep up the good work. He says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers, this is verse 3, when the brothers came and testified to your truth or that you indeed you were walking in the truth. He testified to the truth of your life that you are walking in the truth. You see these individuals that he was sending out and, and teaching, and they were out visiting the churches, perhaps, that, that John had been a part of starting. They, and it's most likely these were churches all over Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It's believed that John probably wrote this from the city of Ephesus. So this is a very Gentile audience uh, that he had been sending them out to. And as they go out and they come back, they were reporting back to John, and they said, you know, there's this guy, Gaius, Man, is he a great dude. I don't know if it's a dude, but he's a great guy. He's living the truth. He's walking with Jesus. And he's ministering to them in ways that um, are encouraging them to keep going. And and as, as, as Gaius was reading this letter, I'm sure he was smiling. People, one of the greatest rewards of being a leader is to see spiritual progress in the members of your congregation. That's the first thing that we give. Spiritual progress individually. Leaders long for it. We long for it. This, you know, I'm, I preached this sermon years ago, but I was in that position of leadership. I get to preach it today as a follower. I get to preach to myself as well as you to remind us that walking with God brings joy not only to Jesus, but it brings joy to our leaders. You want to put a smile on Pastor Andrew's face? Be making spiritual progress. Seek to make spiritual progress in your life. Because pastors struggle. You may not know that, but the truth of the matter is, pastors struggle. There were days when I would drive to the office and I would say, is any of this making any difference to anybody? Is anybody being affected by this in, in, a, in a significant way? Or am I just, you know, going through this thing? And I know that that's true of Pastor Andrew. I know it's true of Pastor Paul. I know Heather is, at the leadership of our our, our church, there are times when we we wrestle. Is this making a difference? I had a mentor when I was in Phoenix uh, by the name of Joel Eidsness. He was my boss for three years when I I first came to Trinity Bible Church in, in Phoenix. And one day somebody came to Joel and they said, Joel, you see so many people that never change in your church. What keeps you going? Why do you keep at it? 
Why don't you just give up? And his answer has shaped me for the rest of my life in ministry. And what he said was, why do I keep growing or keep going when people never seem to change? He said, because some do. Some do change. And not even Jesus did it 100%, if you recall. Not even Jesus did it 100%. Some do. So the question we ask ourselves is, what, is, what are signs of progress in my life? Am I making spiritual progress in my life? I mean, I can't see it on a day-to-day basis. I, it's very difficult to see in a, in a short period of time. Remember, you probably had in your, in your kitchen, most, of, most people I know had, a, had a, a door jam or a place on the wall where your mom or your dad used to have you stand up next to the wall and they would put a, 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 a ruler on your head. My mom came out with a butcher knife or a big carving knife one time. And I kind of went, whoa, what's this? And she laid it on my head and put a, a, a mark in the, in the jam of the door. And what I realized is she, next to it, she would put the date and she would put my initials. And the same with my sister. And what I realized is she had started when we were this high. And now we were this high. And all along, you could see they're making progress. What are the benchmarks or what are the marks in your life that you're making progress? It's hard to tell sometimes, but there usually are some benchmarks that it hits you. One of the things that I've learned that I am making some progress in, I'm still not very good at it, but I'm getting better at receiving criticism, especially from my wife. (laughs) I've made progress. I used to get really defensive. Now I just get somewhat defensive. (laughs) But I'm listening to her because she loves me. And I know that what she's telling me is for my good. And I have made progress. And I can tell I've made progress. It's one of those little benchmarks. Men and women, progress is not perfection. Progress is a process. Progress is a process, and usually it's two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. John Orberg tells a story of a friend of his whose little granddaughter was learning to walk, and she came to him one day, and she said, Grandpa, you want to see me run? And he was a little little surprised because she wasn't walking real well at that point. She was pretty, pretty little. And, of course, he said, well, yeah, honey, I want to see you run. So she, she backs up, and she takes off running through the living room. She runs into the kitchen, smack into the refrigerator. <laughs> and she plops down, and she's laying sprawled on the floor. And he, he comes over and says, honey, are you okay? you got to learn to stop. And she looks up with a big grin on her face, and she says, Grandpa, I'm learning to run. One thing at a time. It's a process. A spiritual leader longs to see spiritual progress individually. We do. They do. But in this, this deal of growing in and being a believer is not just about individuality. It's not just about individually making progress. It's about part of being something bigger. 
And so John goes on as he's encouraging Gaius in verse 5. Again, he uses the word beloved. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. Strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be, here's the words, fellow workers in the truth. When we support people doing this, we become a part of an effort that is beyond ourselves. One of the things that, that we forget sometimes in our individualized culture in America, that so emphasizes radical individualism, is that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And I have a responsibility to other people beyond just me. And that's what John is trying to encourage Gaius because Gaius was doing it. Not only were these fault, there were there false teachers that were going out, which is what 1 John and 2 John and 3 John are all talking about, these false teachers and to beware of these false teachers. But there were good teachers going out too. And he says, you need to support these guys. You need to support these brothers that he refers to because at that time, most of these individuals were men, but it isn't just men. It's, it's, it's those that are going out for the name, the missionaries and itinerant t- uh, teachers, for the sake of the name. They weren't in it to make a name for themselves. They were in, a name, in, in it to serve the name, to make a name for Jesus, to make him famous, to spread the gospel of grace that people would understand. It is by grace you are saved, not by works, but it is a gift of God that no one would boast and so Gaius, is, he's telling him, keep it up, man. Don't give up. Just because there's, there's, there's issues and struggles and people are not all on the same page. But he opened his house. He was hospitable. He welcomed them. He fed them. He encouraged them. And then he would send them on their way. Many of us forget the fact that, you know, our, really we see our house as a sanctuary, a fortress, we shut out the world. And what he's, he's saying is, is that in this case, he, he probably used his home. He probably welcomed them into his home. For some of us, your house may be the only church building some people ever walk into. Your life may be the only Jesus somebody ever sees. We are a part of something Bigger than ourselves. The second thing that leaders long for from us is a commitment to a common purpose corporately. A commitment to the gospel. And a commitment as a church to the the same vision, the same direction, the same flavor. To love like Jesus. Columbia Grove. But not everybody was on board. Look at verse 9. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, 
got to be careful when I say, when I talk about diatrophies, diatrophies, and it comes out diatrophies, and I don't want it to come out that way. <laughs> diatrophies, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority, John's authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and he also stops those who want to and he puts them out of the church. I don't know who this Diotrephes guys was, but he had to have been in a position of some responsibility or some prominence. And he was everything Gaius was not. He's He's obstructive. He's destructive verbally. He's uncooperative. He's combative. He's proud. He's arrogant. John does not criticize him for doctrinal issues, if you notice. It's all about his pride and his arrogance. In all my years in ministry, I have to be honest with you, the number of people that gave me problems were usually not doctrinal problems. They tended to be personal problems. They tended to be ego. They tended to be pride. They tended to be people who had their own agenda about what was going on. And they were only interested in pushing their agenda. Diotrephes uh, wanted things his own way. He loved to be first. He wanted everybody to pay attention to him. He wanted to be the center of attention. He resisted authority. He was not going to recognize John. He was destructive verbally. I don't know what he said, but can you imagine? John was so upset. He said, I will come and bring what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome these brothers, but he also stops those who want to. He was discouraging the people that really wanted to do the things. And so Gaius was running up against this prominent person. Now, I don't know whether he was an elder or a leader. It doesn't say. Most likely, he was a member of a prominent family in the church who probably had financial means. I don't know this for sure. But oftentimes, that's not too uncommon, where a prominent family has greater sway in decisions about things. And so he was misusing his prominence and his power, and he was telling people, don't do that. And if they did, he was, you know, building against them. He was working against, we called them well-intentioned dragons in the churches I've been in the past. People who were well-intentioned, but they, they didn't want to cooperate. I don't even think he was well-intentioned. He was just malicious. Leaders long for followers who have a common commitment, or a commitment to a common purpose, a common vision corporately, that we are a part of something big and bigger than ourselves. Whose kingdom are you building? Whose kingdom are we building? Hopefully our kingdom, the kingdom that we are building is Christ. If I'm building my kingdom, it might satisfy me personally for a while, but in the end it won't last. It can't. 
It can't. William Randolph Hearst was an empire builder. And if you've ever been to the central coast of California, there's a little town called San Simeon. And on near San Simeon, William Randolph Hearst built a mansion. Why don't you put that up on the screen, John? Looks like Disneyland. I've been there. I've taken a partial tour. They've got like three to five different tours to go through the, the main mansion of the house. And you see that swimming pool up there on the, in the left-hand corner? They've laid the tile in that so that the tile make it look like there's no deep end. I don't know why. 72,000 square feet of space. And he filled it with all kinds of things that made him feel significant. Rugs from Egypt that are 3,500 years old and medieval things that hang on the wall. And he owned 265,000 acres. Imagine mowing that. 265,000 acres. And on that, he had a zoo. He had wild animals that imported from Africa, and they lived on his property in San Simeon. 50 miles of the California coast, of the California shoreline, he owned at one point. 50 miles. And he filled this with stuff. For 88 years... And you know what he did then? He died. (laughs) Whose kingdom are you building? You may not be building San Simeon, but you may be building some other thing. What would bring a smile to our leaders' faces is a commitment to a common purpose. That we be unified, not just doctrinally, but in, a, in, in our philosophy, philosophy. What's the texture? What's the, the mood? What's the, what's the feel of our church? And, and, and do, when people come in to here, do they have a sense that this is a congregation that really loves like Jesus? My own experience in this is when we came, I think we do. But we can, we can get better at it. We can keep going. We can keep making progress. So, spiritual progress individually, a commitment to a corporate per, or common purpose corporately. But there's another dimension that flows out of this. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not even seen God. Demetrius, in verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself, from the word confirms him. We we also add our testimony, as you know that our testimony is true. That I'm going to speak the truth to you, John is telling them. And then he he closes the, the note with this. He says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write them with, or write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. 
Peace be to you, and the friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. As Gaius was reading this letter, most likely, as he read this letter, I can envision him looking up into the face of a young man, the courier that brought it. Most scholars believe that this was Demetrius, that he was the one who brought the letter to Gaius. And he says, Demetrius, this guy, has received a good testimony from everyone. Think about that. Think about everybody you know. Would everyone say you're, has something good to say about you? And from the truth itself, from the word, it was evident from the, the way he lived that he, his life imitated what the text talks about, the truth. And we also add our testimony. You know that our testimony is true. What he's saying is Demetrius, who is this missionary courier guy that was standing right in front of him, John is saying, Gaius... When you look at Demetrius, what you see is what you get. He's the real deal. He's a good man. He's not perfect. None of us are. But he is a man in whom there is no guile, and you can trust what he's saying, that he is here to convey the truth. In your struggle with diatrophies and all the conflict in the church, this is a guy who, can, who, will, who will not turn on you. He will support this mission that we have outlined. Accept him. Listen to him. There was a goodness and a clarity and a transparency about Demetrius, apparently, that was evident. And my experience has been when you are a person who is, 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 is making spiritual progress individually and you're committed to a corporate purpose of the gospel of grace corporately, that you're walking in the truth, that that begins to translate into the kind of person you are. Jesus said what? Let your light shine. That, that there is a light inside of all of us, that if, if we are willing to, to commit to these, these realities, it not only encourages our spiritual leaders, but it encourages Jesus. Think about that. There's a way we can live that actually puts a smile on Jesus' face. That's pretty cool. There was an authentic goodness. So the third thing is that there's an authentic goodness that leaders long to see in their followers. An authentic goodness that extends, it can't be hidden. A light can't be hidden. You can't, don't put it under a bushel. The people... People see God through transparent vessels. That's a quality that is not contrived. But there's a genuineness. There's an authenticity. There's a willingness to say, you know, I really messed up on that. I didn't do that right. I was not what I should have been there. I failed. I was wrong. When you see that in an individual, there's a, it's evident that the Spirit of God is working in there are no power plays. There's no pious legalism. No self-righteous agenda. 
Like Paul would say later, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate the Savior. That will bring joy to our leaders. That will bring joy to our leaders. Robert Fulgham, many, maybe some of you remember, wrote a book. <laughs> oh, I can't even remember how long ago it was, far before some of you were born. But it's a great book. It's called Everything I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Some of you remember it. Great title. Everything I ever needed to know I learned in kindergarten. Wash your hands, be polite, be nice. In that, he tells a story of a traveler who was going from northern Italy to the south of France to see the construction of the great cathedral of Chartres. Why don't you put that up on the... Baby, that ain't a warehouse. He was traveling to see how it was being built and and what was going on. And and this traveler showed up at the job site. It was night or getting on toward dark. And when the day was done, the workers couldn't see much more. And so they were heading home to their huts and their hovels and their little places where they lived, and as he approached the, the, the building site and the, and the workers were passing him, he, he came upon a man and he was kind of covered with dust. And he, he said, sir, what is it that you do here? And the man said, I'm a stonemason, and I break rocks. I carve rocks all day, and I chip away at rocks for the building. So he went a little further, and there was another guy whose fingers were kind of stained with dye, and he says, what do you do, sir? And he says, I, I'm a glass blower, and I, I make slabs of colored glass for the windows. Huh. A little further on, he comes to a, a guy who's basically covered in soot. I think he knows what this guy does, but he says, what is it you do? And he says, well, I'm a... Uh, um, brain burp. I'm a blacksmith. I bend steel. I heat it, bend it, shape it, make it for all these things. He goes a little further into the darkening edifice of the building. There's no light, or not much light anyway, at this point in the day, and he hears something like a sweeping sound. And he comes upon a woman, and she is, she's sweeping up shards of glass and shavings of wood and, and, and bits of rock and dust and dirt. She, she's sweeping it up. And he says to her, Madam, what are you doing? And she looked at him, she paused, she kind of put her hands on her broom handle. She looked up into the arches above her head, and she says, I am building a cathedral to the glory of Almighty God. 
makes all the difference in the world. Whose kingdom am I building? Will it last? I guarantee you, if we're building Christ's kingdom, it's going to encourage our leaders. And we're going to be good followers. Ultimately, not just of our leaders, but of our Savior. Don't waste your life building your own kingdom. It won't last. Only what we do for Christ and the people we build into will last.